The Playhouse and That's Not Canon Productions acknowledge traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording this show today and all surrounding areas where we live, learn, and work. We also pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. Oh, here we are. It is scene 30 of The Playhouse. It is very weird at the moment because I don't have anyone to bounce off with. Where's Brooke? Not not to fret, not to fret at all because she'll be here in a couple of minutes. But hello everybody and welcome to The Playhouse. Uh, It's a bit of an awkward situation. I'm pretty sure everyone is assuming why because we had a bit of a cheeky lockdown and so we're staying safe in our homes and everything. But the sooner we get it done, the better. And we'll be back into our regular schedule in the studio. We're here to talk to the amazing Cecily. Now, Cecily has one of many talents who connects her theatre and performance training as an educator and passion for arts outreach to deliver programming that serves artists and art industry on a global scale. Now, she is the founder of Stage Change, which is a collective of theatre professionals working to create more professional theatre opportunities for aspiring artists of colour throughout Australia. And this interview is a delight to discuss about really because it's what we all need to discuss is diversity and inclusivity so let's get right into Cecily so here we go so first of all welcome to the show Cecily we're super super keen to have you on today thank you got started in the arts was it something that started as a kid or something that you found as you got older Yeah, absolutely. Um, And thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here as well. Um, First, I'd like to start, start by acknowledging traditional owners of the land that I'm on today. I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. So I'm down in what is commonly known as Melbourne. Uh, And I'm just grateful that we can we can be together today um, virtually and, you know, on these lands. But to your question, um, my background. Well, um, I, I started off as a young girl, you know, as a lot of people do in America. Um, I grew up in the church. And so I sang in the choirs at church. And then I liked cheerleading and I liked dancing. And then I liked acting. But I never really understood that all three of those things came together, uh, you know, as a as a passion, much less as a career. So um, my parents were very supportive of me and what I wanted to do, but they come from, you know, medical and business, you know, pharmaceutical backgrounds and not really from, uh, you know, the arts side. So um, I would say that thankfully their ability to drive me around to a million different classes as a young person, ultimately led to me, my, you know, my passions in theater, becoming passion for musical theater when I got into high school um, and then, you know, studying in college and, and that, that's the way it went, I guess. Cool. And, and from that, we had a look at your CV and you've got some really cool shows on there that were in the US and then now you're in Australia. So how did your career path take you from the US where there are more like traditional theater productions happening to Down Under? Yeah. So, um, I started off really just like blazed out of college. I was like, I'll do anything, anywhere. Like, just give me a job. And so uh, I did the summer stock tour for a while. I did cruises and theme parks and, you know, regional theater, a lot of that. And I was very, very grateful to be cast in uh, Book of Mormon. 
in the States. So I did that show there, uh, opened the Chicago company and then the did the tour for about three and a half years. And then when they opened the company in Australia, I was like, hey, I'll, I'll go. And so that's sort of how I got here. I opened the company here in Melbourne and did the show for just over a year here. Wow. I wonder if we saw you then. Did, did you, were you with the tour when it came up to Brizzy? No, I, uh, I only did the Melbourne company of it. I um, Backstory, I met my husband. Well, he wasn't my husband then, but I met him a couple of months into the run. And, um, you know, when I decided, I guess, to stay in Australia, which I'm sure we'll get to, it just made sense for me to stay in Melbourne and, I, so, and not continue the tour with the show. So I decided to stay here. Wow. So you, you came over with the intention of just doing this tour just in Australia for a little bit and then found your home. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. I thought I was coming for 14 months and four and a half years later, here I am. Wow. So cool. I like <laughs> how when you like plan things and you're like, actually, no, what fun where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> well, I noticed that because you did uh, work in the States and then in uh, Australia. Have you noticed the kind of atmosphere that the audience has from performing in the States and then Australia? What I would say is audiences everywhere are different. So being on tour with Mormon for so long, you know, we went everywhere across the U.S. So I've done the show in, you know, tiny towns in not tiny towns, but, you know, small towns in the South versus in the Pacific Northwest where you're in Seattle and Portland and, you know, the energy in, in L.A., the energy of the audience differs everywhere you go. So in that same way, absolutely, I would say the audience is here are different audiences here are a bit more cerebral. They, the low hanging fruit doesn't get nearly as many laughs as like the, the high <laughs> one, but you know, that's very similar to the audiences in like Seattle or something. They're, they're very much the same way, but I would say, you know, the theater industry is so different here than it is in America. In America, there are so many amazing regional theaters and so many, you know, Broadway is amazing and wonderful, but there's so much theater outside of the big commercial productions. And the, that theater gets a lot of recognition and support as well. And it gives a lot of opportunities for artists of all types to find representation because there's just so much more, you know, it's economy of scale. Mm. Whereas in Australia, there's also really great exciting theater that happens on that, I wouldn't say below, but step aside of um, commercial theater and that sort of thing, but there's just not as much of it. So there's not as many opportunities for people to engage with it. The one side of that is that when there's something really good and really juicy, people latch on and it's beautiful, but there's just not as many opportunities for as many artists to be represented as as many people to work. And I think, you know, that's, that's a good and a bad thing here. It makes the good stuff really exciting, but the unfortunate thing is we don't get to see nearly as much stuff as you, mm. you do in the US. Well, I, I want to know then too, so when you came to Australia, obviously you weren't anticipating staying here, but as you kind of found your roots here, did, was that a quick realisation that there weren't as many opportunities here or was it something you kind of predicted happening? Yeah, so um, that's a good question and it sort of leads to my journey of how I ended up staying here really. When I got here, I was so excited and the short story version of the story is that I, I found it really interesting that there were 11 artists, Black artists, um, playing the African, the Ugandans in Book of Mormon, who had been, you know, for lack of a better word, imported in to come and do the show. And there was no real, uh, you know, sense that like, oh man, we gotta, we gotta train up the people here so that we don't have to import artists anymore. And, you know, 
uh, it is worthy to note that like I am fully an import. I am absolutely a beneficiary of the system that, you know, of bringing actors over. So I acknowledge my privilege in that for sure. Um, but I just couldn't help but wonder why there weren't more um, pathways to professional performance opportunities. You know, that's kind of where I started with professional performance opportunities for artists of color. Why was it that the easiest solution was just to bring someone in? And at the time I was here with Mormon, you know, we had Mormon, we had Aladdin, we had, uh, interestingly enough, Beautiful was on at the same time and they decided to use Australian artists, which is great, but you know, it, there was, it was quite problematic to cast real life people with people who didn't have African or African-American or African diasporic ties, but they wanted to use Australian. So it sort of felt like you have these two schools of thought. Do we write for the parts? Or do we use who we have? And, you know, without regard of their actual identity or the identities that are called for in the scripts of these characters. And that's sort of what led me, got me started down the path of what is representation in, in Australia? What does authenticity look like? Why aren't there more artists of color who are trained up and ready to go? Why is importing an easier solution, even though it's more expensive, more of a hassle, more of a frustration for producers? Why is that easier than the alternative? And it was, it was, it sort of felt like if I, if I had, you know, had to do a dissertation, that's, I felt like that's what I was on the track to do. Lots of interviews, lots of uh, conversations with people, lots of roundtable discussions. And ultimately that's sort of what led to Stage of Change. Stage of Change was absolutely started because there was this need, clear need to me in Australia to figure out how we can support representation and authenticity on stage and also providing more professional opportunities for artists of color, whether that's, you know, now it started off really performance focused, but now it's really segued into how do we get more directors of color? How do we get more lighting designers of color? How do we engage people who are um, historically excluded from the industry in positions of power and leadership within the arts industry. So I, I got some work to do. So here I am <laughs> four and a half years later. <laughs> well, it started in 2017, didn't it? The, the truth of the matter is in 2017, we started with our roundtables. We started with, you know, questions. In 2018, we got a grant from through VCA to run our first pilot program, which was really exciting. And I, you know, I really kept knocking on doors and trying to figure out what I could do. I had some consultancies and some workshops, but the real catalyst, you know, absolutely, unfortunately, was the George Floyd murder in the United States and kind of the Rob Guest endowment here and sort of this, this, you know, 2020 being the year that it was, the year that allowed people to really stop and sit and think about what was going on. We've been running, we've been running for four years, um, but people have really engaged with us, I'd say in the last year, which is great. Unfortunate that that had to be the catalyst, but great that now we're busier than ever. And I noticed on your, on your website as well, you have a, a three spoke plan, which yeah. is part of Stage of Plan. So are you able to discuss further of what the, the plan is about with yeah. Stage of Change? Yeah. So um you know, in, in a lot of that research, it felt like there were a lot of people who said, well, we don't have artists of color on stage because they're not being trained. Well, we can't train them because they don't audition for our schools. Well, they don't audition for our schools because they're not seeing themselves on the stage. Well, they're not seeing themselves on the stage because they don't audition. So it sort of felt like this wheel that there was always an excuse and something else went, went back to it. So that's why I call it the three spoke plan, because I really do feel like it's a wheel that we've got to turn collectively. And the three spoke spokes are 
uh, artist training, which, you know, is just what it says, making sure that there are opportunities for artists to have access to the training and to understand what kind of training um, they would potentially want in order to feel like they've got the, the best representation of themselves. The second spoke is audience engagement or community engagement. And that's really about um, letting people know that the theater is a welcome place for them, whether that's you know education and talking to people with their parents about what it's like to go to school for theater or initiatives that are in partnership with theaters to engage communities, to bring them into the theater and make it not just a one way, hey, we've got tickets, come and see us, but really an exchange of community and conversation. And then the third part of that is industry standards. So that's working with organizations to help them implement uh, inclusive and equitable practices within the foundation of their organization so that they are a safe space for people to come and work. And that happens in casting. Uh, so I've done a lot of casting consultancy lately, diversity and inclusion workshops, um, all the way to implementing strategy into their, their policies and really going into the foundation of the organization and helping them make those structural changes. That's so awesome. It's really important as well, like even though it sucks that 2020, it was kind of like that pivotal moment of people that had to really realise it though, it has to be like, it was a, it's a kind of a starting point for majority of the populate, population who aren't aware of it as well that need to kind of highlight the importance of inclusivity and diversity in the arts as well. Yeah, with, with stage of change too, is there like, is there is there a big picture goal is there is there something that you're it's so clear that you're, you're doing so much to help in getting diverse people into the theater but what's the what's the end the end game what's the big picture yeah I mean the, the end game like I take my hat and I say I'm done when the industry supports everyone equally and I think that's my specific work is in supporting artists of color, but I think when the industry supports artists of color in the same way that they support disabled artists, in the same way that we're celebrating our first people's artists, in the same way that we are you know, making space for people who are neurodiverse, um, when the industry from the way that we engage with audiences, the way we support our contractors, the way we hire and engage our internal staff, the way that we program our shows, when all of that stuff has that lens of equity and inclusion on it, and everyone has an ability to feel safe within the workspace and create their best work and take risks that are within their own boundaries, when everyone has the ability to do that, that's when I'm done. So, you know, <laughs> probably not soon, but it, it'll be there. And I'm sure as well, there'll be a lot of people that hear this interview and then that inspires them to start their own like similar corporation in their area or to reach out to you specifically and say, hey, what, where are we going wrong? What can we do? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really great. Um, I've been very, very lucky in the last year to work with some theater organizations and producers who I've worked with previously who say, hey, I know you're doing this work. Can you come in and teach a workshop? Can you come in and just help us? Can you offer your lens of you know, of diversity and equity over our auditions. Can you look at our marketing material and make sure that we didn't miss anything? And I'm by no means the expert or the one who holds all of the, the answers, but it's been really great to see people acknowledge that there are things that they just don't know and there's perspectives that they can't have. And that, that I think that really says a lot for some of those organizations and how important it is to them to, to help make the industry better and safer. Definitely. Of course. And I know, I know that there will be like companies and organizations that will reach to you as well. Do you go to companies as well and just say, hey, this is me. 
I do this if you want to do it. <laughs> um, uh, yes. So um, I, I started out doing that way, but honestly, I've been very busy lately. So um, my, my personal marketing outreach has been a little bit slow. I'm very grateful that um, word of mouth has been my best friend lately. Um, but yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> answer yes I do well I like I like how you said that you are busy because you're also a mother as well yeah how do you how do you like use all your skills and all your talent in the arts now but also having that balance as being a, a mother as well well my daughter is she just turned two her name is Alula and she is an absolute amazing little human uh she's funny and she's so smart and she she just, she's just the absolute reminder that life is about more than the grind, you know? And she will sometimes look at me if I'm sitting next to her working and she'll say to me, mommy, stop working. And so that's, that's the end of my day. You know, I have to, I have to give her her love, but she's, she's phenomenal. I'm just really gushing about my daughter now. <laughs> um, <keep> going. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it is hard. It is hard trying to really I would say start a business. The business started quite a while ago, but sort of restart or re-pick up this new part of the business um, and be a parent and be a wife and be an artist. Um, and so, you know, you I give and take. There are some days where I can go and do, you know, a commercial shoot or a film shoot or a TV shoot. And in those weeks, I try to make sure that I don't have a lot of stage of change workshops booked because I know how it'll affect my personal time. Um, I do a lot of work and send a lot of emails between 9 p.m. and midnight. I don't expect anyone to respond at that time, but you know that's kind of my my working time. But yeah, I, I think I've always been a person who's had 17 irons in the stove. So yeah. she just picked up seven yeah. or eight of those irons, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a huge conversation at the moment happening in, especially in the art space of like this like hustle grind burnout culture that's happening. We're all just spreading ourselves so thin in, in your day to day. Like how do you set those boundaries of other than, than of course your daughter, how do you find those boundaries of work time, rest time and play time? Burnout is so real. Burnout is, is such um, a thing, particularly when we're all in sort of an anxious state, you know, a heightened state anyway with, in terms of COVID and, and what you can do and when you can do it. Um, for me, I make a lot of lists and I, I look at all the things that I have to do, all the people I need to respond to, all the emails I need to send. And then once I have that list, I allocate what days I'm planning to do them. And I'm, I am learning to not be so ashamed of the carryover. You know, If I have 10 things to do today and I get six of them done, that just means I need to find a time to allocate those other four things based on what I have going on. I, I, I'm, I'm old school. So I love, I love a, an actual planner that I actually write with my hands into to try to create space. And I just, I learned to forgive myself. You know, I learned that it's okay if I can't do everything I want to do. I try not to overcommit. Yeah. Just, I mean, you know, reminding myself that right now I'm doing the work that's important to me and I do the work that's, I feel like is making an impact. I, I used, I used to be really big on this whole thing that I called, um, all right. So I used to be big on this thing that I called live, learn, love. And it was like, if something, if I was going to do something, it either needed to help me live. So like pay my bills, it needed to be something that I was going to learn from that was going to, you know, enhance my skills or something that I absolutely loved doing so much that like, I, I just wanted to do it for me. And if I wasn't able to fit what I was doing into one of those categories, then I was able to say, 
I'm allowed, I'm able to say no to that. You know, like if someone invites you to dinner and you just don't really have time or it's a friend that you really love to catch up with, but you know, you could do it a different way. It's, it's not going to pay your bills. It's not something that you really want to do. It's not something that you're going to learn from. It's okay then to say no. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to say no if it doesn't fit into that, but learning to use those as my modifiers to decide how to keep myself sane. I don't necessarily always apply that same line of thinking nowadays, but I do think that that sort of ethos has been a bit embedded in me and I'm learning to be better about saying no to things. You know, it sounds really great. It sounds cool, but actually that's not going to align with what I want to be doing right now. And, you know, sometimes, sorry to my agent who I love, but like sometimes that's now this audition, I'm not going to do that because I'm not really passionate about the product. I'm not going to learn anything, you know, working on that particular show. It'll help me pay my bills. Sure. But so is the other work I'm doing. So sometimes things when they don't align with who I am, I'm able to say no. And it, I, I'll tell you, when you say no, and it really, really is a time to say no, it actually feels so good. I feel like that's what artists are so scared of saying mm-hmm. though. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Cause it's such a, it's a tight knit industry as well. And they're like, Oh, they're going to say no going to say no to every single opportunity but it, mm-hmm. if it doesn't feel right for you personally as an artist yeah I think you know going back to your earlier question I think that's one of the other things that is a bit of the difference between the U.S. and Australia is that because work is so much more infrequent here than it is there it's really hard to say no here because you feel like if I don't audition for this there's not another big show coming for three months or mm. you know if I don't book this one I, I don't know when I'm going to work again I don't think that sentiment is the same in the US because there are so many more opportunities to work, but it really means that here in Australia, you have to learn how to listen to your inner voice. You have to learn how to say, this is not going to serve me, or I don't, I don't believe in this product, or I don't like the way that they are depicting people. You know, I don't like the way they're depicting black women in this. So I don't really want to be a part of it or you know, whatever it might be, or this company doesn't really feel like it aligns with my values and principles. The show is going to be great, but I just can't, I can't authentically be a part of it. And it's really hard. I won't pretend that it's not hard. And it's really easy to say, well, just don't do it if it doesn't feel right from the outside. It's much harder when you've got bills to pay, or you've got a child to take care of, or you've got things that are going on in your life. But I think as an industry, our industry is better served when we speak up as artists, when we find ways to take our power back and say, this is, this is not for me. And, you know, the flip side of that is knowing that, you know, unless it's like a really, really problematic something, it might be the perfect vehicle for someone else. So finding the humility to say, this is not for me. And and knowing that you're opening the door for someone who it might really be for, there's absolute beauty in that. And that's what makes us a community. And that's what makes, you know, the sector stronger and, and even more powerful as a whole. Mm. And it's also building that confidence as well. Yeah. I feel like if you were going to get booked in this one, if this was your show, then there will be another show. Well, on that note then is, does that kind of align with what your advice to younger performers would be? (laughs) I have so much advice to give. Um, you know, okay. The first thing I say about advice is like, I'm absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. What I say is based on my experience and what I've seen and what my perspective within the industry, but it may absolutely be the worst advice for someone else. I think I'm sure that anybody who's, you know, been on your show before has probably said this exact same thing, but the most important you can do thing you can do as an artist, as a young artist 
is to explore you, explore what your voice sounds like, explore how you feel comfortable in dance, take five different styles of dance and figure out what your body likes to do. Have hobbies outside of the arts, love airplanes or zoo animals. I'm thinking about what my daughter loves, helicopters. Oh, I love that. You know, really find out who you are, particularly when you're young, because the biggest mistake I see is so many people saying, oh my God, Susie got booked in the show and she is such a strong belter. I need to go work on my belt. But if belt is not your your baby, then what Susie does to get booked is none of your business. What you do to get yourself booked is your business. So, and like, it's literally your business. Think about yourself as a business. So focus on you, focus on all of the things that make you you, not just training. Focus on what your business looks like. Focus on what your values are. Focus on what kind of art you want to make. Focus on who you want your network to be. Focus on whose work inspires you. What plays are you reading? How are you increasing your knowledge? What TV shows are you watching? How are you studying um, acting choices and character development? Focus on you so that when you walk in the room, you are the best version of yourself. The other piece of advice or reminder, I guess I would say, is when, when I'm sitting behind the casting table and people walk in the door, I am begging you to be the solution to my problems. I am pleading with you to be everything I want you to be. I want you to be amazing. So if you come in and you are about to just blow my socks off being yourself, you've answered my prayers. Thank you so much. My job is done. So we are on your side the, the more you can, you know, remember that when you walk in the room, instead of saying, oh my gosh, I've got to, I've got to impress these people. No, no, no. I need you to, I need you to be you so that then I can impress the audience. Like we're together, we're in the team together. So just remembering um, as artists that the people on the other side of the table, they want to see you. They want to see you in all of your glory. And I promise if you're trying to be Susie, we might miss what makes you, you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing advice. Uh, now we're, we're slowly coming to the end of the episode, and we we love hearing you and what you do for the industry as well, and we we really appreciate it. We have we have one more question to ask you, and we normally ask this question to all of our roomies because you're our roomie. Uh, <laughs> so our last question is because you lived in the states, you're now in Melbourne. Where where is home for you? Or where do you call home? <laughs> it could be like an actual house. It could be a space in a theatre. Um, you know, that's a hard one, especially now. I, I'm so bad at short answers. <laughs> but, you know, I left home home when I was pretty young. I went to college when I was 17, which is young in the U.S. And I never really lived there again. Um, I've lived in about... I don't know, 15 or so different states in the US. Living in Melbourne is actually the longest I've ever lived anywhere consistently since I was 17. Oh, wow. Oh, I know, right? Absolutely. I used to call myself home free because it sounded better than homeless, but um, I was abundantly homeless, you know, traveling and touring and that sort of thing. But I would say that my home right now is, you know, where I can, where I can, do the work and give love and feel love. So my home, I guess, is Melbourne, but it is absolutely tied to FaceTime so that I can connect with my mom back home. Like my, my mom and I are very, very close, very close. 
So lockdown has been really hard, but it's reminded me that physically being with her is not like what I need. I just need that connection to her. And thankfully FaceTime does that for me. So I'd say my home is somewhere with my daughter and my husband with my FaceTime. Yes. Doing good work. So in that description, home home is Melbourne. This is my home right now. Lovely. And hopefully when lockdown, I mean, not lockdown, when COVID is non-existent, you can hopefully come back or go to the States or even your mum can come to Melbourne even. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's heartbreakingly feeling further and further away, mm. but yeah, I just hope, I hope we don't have to get to her, my daughter's third birthday without Grammy. Oh goodness. me. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, let's cross. Yes. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We, and, and I'm assuming the listeners as well, they want to know more about Stage of Change as well. So where can people find you and also Stage of Change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am most active on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, both of those handles are just Stage of Change. Um, but you can always email us at hello at stageofchange.org. Uh, check out our website, stageofchange.org. Or, you know, I'm, I'm on the, the gram. Like, is that what the young folks say? Yeah. On the gram, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm around and um, Googling Cecily is thankfully a, a very easy way to find me because there aren't a lot of Cecilies out there. An iconic name that everyone will recognize. <laughs> I'm just two steps below Beyonce. I mean, I'm really getting close. <laughs> like this <laughs> oh goodness but thank you so much for coming on to the, the podcast as well and I'm sure everyone is so excited about hearing more about stage change and diversity on in theater and the arts and we hope to see more of it awesome thanks for having me in the house <laughs> anytime So to learn more about Stage of Change, head over to the Stage of Change website at www.stageofchange.org and it's all there for you. We think it is such an important cause because it is no surprise that this is our very first Playhouse pick for this episode. If you want to see the cast of Dancing Queens that Cicely has actually assembled, our second Playhouse pick is Mamma Mia, presented by the Shoko at the Event Centre in Caloundra from the 14th of October. Now, what's better than a classic love story? It is a comedic parody of a classic love story. Duh. So Act React are boarding ship again at the powerhouse with their immersive retelling of Jack and Rose's love story. Or doomed love, really, I have to say. So it is Titanic, the movie, the play. It sails from the 19th of August to the 12th of September. And while we're here at the powerhouse... It's very fitting for our next Playhouse pick, actually. So following three sellout seasons, Boy and Girl is returning to the stage and flirtier than ever. I'll read out the synopsis from uh, the Oscar production company. It is featuring a live band, jaw-dropping acts, and a world-class ensemble of singers, dancers, cirque, and specialty acts. Boy and Girl is the steamy one-night stand you won't regret in the morning. This season runs from August the 19th to the 28th. And also, as usual, if you want to learn more about our Playhouse picks and everything and all the fabulous little show notes we've done, you can always head to our socials, which is on Instagram and Facebook and just the 
the usual socials. So, how would you... Well, I was literally going to ask a question to Brooke, but Brooke's not here. It's so weird. But normally we wrap it up and just kind of reflect on the, on the cheeky episode. So what did I learn from the interview with Cecily? And I've literally wrote down notes because what she said is absolutely amazing. And I love the idea of understanding the difference between uh, theatre and the arts from different areas around the around the world as well, and especially her kind of realizing what the Australian arts is like and then bringing up a, an organization such as Stage of Change is so important and also beneficial for uh, existing artists as well and also emerging creatives such as myself and Brooke when it comes to creating new works and everything in the arts is just something to really consider and also make sure that it's not it's really taken care of and it's something that we really need to focus on. And I'm so appreciative of what Cicely has done for Stage of Change as well. And I really liked her um, her plan as well. We're in the arts and it's all about diversity, inclusivity and just, but we are done for the scene and we're going to wrap up. Normally Brooke is here to say goodbye, but imagine her, she's saying bye. She's saying goodbye now, but yes, we'll be back for another scene next week. Bye Ruby, ciao ciao. That's Not Canon Productions podcast. This is Jones and Wolf, a monthly audio fiction podcast featuring original music. In our first season, we told stories about a heartbroken television collector, a tech entrepreneur in Washington, D.C. who developed an addiction to honesty, and a time traveler who came to our present to reveal the truth about Kim Kardashian. Now... In our second season, we're telling more delightfully dark and strange stories that explore what our relationships with technology might look like in the near future, and what happens when they go a little sideways. Curious to hear more? Check us out at jonesandwolf.buzzsprout.com, or search for Jones and Wolf wherever you listen to podcasts. Until then, my ephemeral friends, thanks for listening. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast.